Welcome to Board Chili Podcast. I'm Vera. 100 Hall Ones is first series of Board Chili Podcast. We'll have 100 apes from all over the world share their ape stories, talking about their projects and fun, or give unique perspectives on working the Web3. In this episode, we are going to have a very interesting topic of DAO. And the things that we are going to make even better is I brought our friend and my colleague Lost, who's the steward of ApeCoin and creator of Hodo Collective. To bring friends into NFT community, support creators, and help them to build their own virtual identity. Hi, Lost. Hey, Vera. Thanks for inviting me up here today. I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you guys up here. Thank you for co-hosting with me. But that's not all. We are also joined by a total DAO expert, Ben, who is the founder of Origami and Orange DAO, and it used to be the CEO of Cheeseburger. Ben's all about helping communities create amazing DAO that are actually valuable, and we can't wait to pick his brand for this topic. So let's grab a drink and get comfy, and let's chat about DAOs. Actually, before we start a DAO conversation, what's your ape story? Let's start with Lost. My ape story. So I've always been a gamer, so I've kind of been in Discord for a long time, rather since 2015. And me and some of my gaming buddies got into crypto pretty early. By 2021, by the time the apes had come around, we didn't have to be sold on blockchain or you know Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything. I was more of a forum user myself, like more into Reddit to getting my information. And my other buddy was more in the Twitter side, so he was actually the one that found the apes first. And I was honestly not. On board when they were minting, and it took me until they minted out, and all the way up until I ended up getting my ape for 11 ETH with the merchat, the board ape merchat. Just kind of, you know, I always appreciated the IP situation that they had going on. So, my story was kind of a little bit longer than some of the people who were maybe minters. I did join in the first month and a half or so there, and yeah, I've kind of just been holding on since. Been a long time member of the community. Survived the the board ape death nuts challenge. So. Yeah, it's been a fun ride. Well, you have a blue ape, and then is that your forever ape now? Yeah, at this point, me and all lost here, so I, I I named my ape lost. It's kind of become my digital identity, and yeah, he's sticking with me. Oh, I love that story. What about you, Ben? Yeah, so I actually watched the mint as well. I created a DAO with a handful of friends to buy some NFTs and to actually learn how to build DAOs and. I remember watching the minting happen, and I'm like, "Oh man, that's not a lot of money for a JPEG in terms of dollar terms." And at that point, I was still like struggling to understand the world in ETH terms versus dollar terms. And so, I kept on watching the price go up. And we actually, as a DAO, purchased a ape before I purchased mine. And so, actually, I'm looking at the transaction hash on EtherScan, and I bought it as of this recording, 601 day ago. Right, so it's it's been a while since I've had this, and I bought it because it was I'm a minimalist generally speaking, and it was really clean, and the tones between the fur and the background worked well for me, and I could see that like having a you know a bunny ear costume would make this like a super easy to represent in the world world type of ape, and so like that's how I got into it, and so this is my forever ape, sixty nine fifty two. Oh, the bunny ear! There is a group for bunny ear too. Are you in the Twitter group? <laughs> sure, <thing? laughs> sure. That's a group for bunny. Yeah, I really, and it's like I really like bunny ear. Yeah, like and an ape that you know is like banana colored. You know, it makes sense. <laughs> Or also, happy six hundred days for your ape. Is it six hundred or six hundred one? 
601 days. Oh, wow. Well, happy first day of getting <laughs> so to 700. Is, it's crazy. I was like, I was like, has it been that long? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, yeah. Well, good times. Good times. Good times indeed. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit about the DAO. So how did you start first, first learn about the DAO and start it? Yeah, I've been watching. I almost participated in the DAO, the very first DAO back in 2016. And I opted not to because I felt like it was a little too premature. And obviously the hack happened and obviously the fork and all that. So watching all that drama happen, you're like, oh, wow, DAOs aren't really a thing, right? They can't really make this work. And then after a while, you, you saw people continue to experiment with it. And so what is the DAO good for? Like, how should it be used? What are the circumstances in which you want to apply governance in the open or private group governance. And so watching Meta Cartel and watching them build their DAO and all the flaws that happened with it, I actually started to realize that if you wanted to have broader participation in the economics of Web3, that DAOs were the gateway to actually getting it done. That people understood collective buying, collective investing, but all of the tools that we had were really woefully insufficient. And not only that, the doing investing in a compliant way was also really challenging. And so having built a investment club DAO, which is limited to 100 people with a bunch of friends, like I could see where the limitations were. And I set about to actually design a different framework for building DAOs that was legally compliant, that was actually scalable. And that became Orange DAO, which is a group of entrepreneurs. I think we're up to about 1,500 members now. Most of us have actually gone through YC or other accelerator programs. And so we've built this huge community of entrepreneurs, and that became the basis for my company, Origami, which helps build other DAOs like it. Oh, you mentioned a little bit about the DAO hack. Are you, are you talking about the DAO hack? Like yeah, 20... yeah, 2016. Okay, yeah, I was the one got damaged. <laughs> so yeah. when I heard of it, I was like, yeah, that's, I know what you're talking. Yeah, people forget that that like was an incredibly revolutionary idea at the time. And obviously there were a lot of skeptics. And that's what caused the fork between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Like, you know, Ethereum did the unthinkable, yeah. right? Which we literally forked the chain and rolled back that hack. Yeah, yeah. That's why I, I lost a lot of ETH during that time. Well, you, <laughs> well, you didn't get enough ETH Classics to actually go make up for the loss? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Of course not. <laughs> Good times. That was when youth were very early. So it was, it was very early. Time. Yeah. 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 Lost to <laughs> I was just saying, I was just sitting here thinking I, I joined maybe like a year after in 2017 and even being able to join sort of like what was then GDAX, like and later on became Coinbase Pro was like, feels like such a safer environment where like maybe I didn't own my coins necessarily, but at least I was like a little bit safer than being subject to these forks. So I thought. Yeah, I mean, I had a bunch of friends who had their money or had their coins, bitcoins in Mt. Gox. And so like not your keys, you know, not your coins felt real to me. But also at the same time, I was like too lazy to do all that work. So I was like, okay, I'm stuck between should I buy this stuff and who do I trust to custody it? Because it, it was a little bit early for me to actually want to manage my own coins at the time. Oh, do you know for that hack, I think there's a company or fund that they started to buy back the claim. I think they bought it for $4,000 with a Bitcoin. And then that fund was created by a group of friends. Yeah, I remember like people had to settle the Mt. Gox claims in dollar terms, not Bitcoin terms. And so when Bitcoin prices pumped, people were like left without their bag. Right? Yeah. It's like yeah. like who, did, who made money off that? I don't know, but maybe hopefully your friends did. Yeah, also, like, going back to, the, the to you know, the Forever Ape, your first ape is your first ape, you know, there's no way to change that. And the other thing is, like, if you have one ape, what are you going to do? 
That's right? right. I, that totally like, you need multiple apes. So do you have multiple apes? I don't, but I, I kept my mutants. Oh, well, that counts. Yeah, that counts. Oh. Yeah. So mutants are first-class citizens, right? So, yeah. So I, I definitely have multiple apes at this point. And then I'm hoping for, you know, I'm kind of curious to see where it goes from here. Oh, I mean, there are a lot of good apes now. I'm actually looking for it, but I don't know. I have my lovely pink ones. That's my forever ape. Well, the big surprise moment for me was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to buy an ape. I also want a punk, right? Like OGs have punks. I want the punk. And I don't think the flipping was going to happen as quickly as, I, as, as it actually did. And so that was like a wake up moment for me. I was like, okay, there's something going on with apes where the punks are not keeping up. And so what the heck? Right. The, the whole thing uh -huh. about, you know, NFTs was that the OG status should actually hold its value. And so what that was the part that really got me more curious about the community. Are you a punk? Hold No, I'm not a punk holder. The fund that I'm part of, the venture fund that I'm part of at OrangeDAO holds a, a few punks. I see. Yeah, I think that was kind of crazy time when people was talking about, oh, Ape going to flip punk. And we're like, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Like, yeah, me too. Five, we're like five East floor <laughs> and we're now sitting here dreaming on a lot of a lot of up and downs as well during the market. A lot of people from outsider, they see, oh, the BYC just, you know, just went straight up like a rocket. But it wasn't. It was a lot of up and downs. And I, I still remember the time like it was just doesn't feel real. Right. Yeah, so right now, uh, punks and and apes are the same, roughly the same price, at least the floor price, and that's very unusual. Yeah. Right. It's it's usually when you see like collections like this, they should really have very differing prices, but the prices have been actually neck and neck for a long time. I was just gonna say, I know you've had Franklin on here before, and like I've talked to him several times, and I think one of the perspectives he shared that was interesting is like. The punks do move, so if there's like something going on, you know, like we see him trade them. But for the most part, we see that he holds, you know, like the 62 apes. And what he's told me before is like there's almost like a, maybe not an expectation, but like sort of an expectation, you know, that that as a membership pass, like those apes are going to return some sort of value in some way that the punks just like aren't going to return. Yeah, is it because yeah. apes are being actively actively developed on? Right, there's a community that's actually building stuff around it, whereas punks not so much. Yeah, and, but punks is like a status, right? Like, I mean, apes is a status too, right? At this point, like we, they've been around long enough that the next cycle of NFTs, apes are gonna look like OGs. Yes, apes is like a status plus community. <laughs> Punk doesn't have that part. <laughs> I was, I didn't try to be mean, but yeah, I think. <laughs> You're gonna you're gonna get yelled at by the I'm internet. Gonna I'm gonna cut. <laughs> Sudden missing portion of podcast. Um, maybe the podcast will be more popular with what I said, or I got more attack. But there could yeah. be so much shade. Yeah. I remember the punk story from like 60 to 150. You know who bought it? It's a bunch of Bitcoin miners. They have a Chinese group, and they have like, I think they started with three people, and then later on they have 150 people in that chat recently bought the punk and they all bought at the one, 150 or something or even higher. So that's the backstory that I learned. Very interesting. But I don't know why we keep talking about apes and punks and we're supposed to hear talk about DAOs. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's get back to the DAO. Can you explain to the listeners, because a lot of listeners are beginner of DAO, so how DAO like, you know, works and you know, what is a DAO? 
Yeah. So think of a DAO as a community managed treasury or business, right? So instead of being centralized and having a single founder or a small group of founders that decide everything, certain portions of this business or this community is actually given over to the control of the token holders. And so you can use your tokens, whether it's an NFT or a fungible token, to vote on specific topics or specific governance items. Uh, and that is really determined by the community itself and the, and the rules that, are, that the community runs under. And so the vast majority of DAOs run a proposal-based system where proposals can go up for votes by the community. And if the community supports it and it passes quorum and, and majority of that quorum, then you can actually implement that proposal. And there's a team, a core team, whose job is to actually execute the proposal as drafted or as interpreted by those members. Because well, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about what he said about the quorum, and, and so I'm wondering if, like, in your experience, if you found that the, the having a quorum presents like a, a problem, because I know that you said one of the you know one of the problems that DAOs is trying to solve in general is you know engaging people into participation. So, do you find that that's like a bottleneck, or do you find that it encourages people to actually be involved? Well, so quorum is necessary because not all of your members are going to participate. And so you need, need a certain number of tokens represented to say we had enough participation for this vote to count. Otherwise, like in the middle of the night, one person can draft a proposal, submit it. And then if there's one person who votes yes, then it would pass. Right. So there's all these like mechanisms that you have to figure out on how do you apply democracy and, and like elections and other proposal based voting systems versus having a system that's safe where the legitimacy of those votes actually matter, right? So you've got this balancing act you have to do because if you set quorum too high, nothing will pass. And so, in fact, there are, there are software-based voting systems in which you can end up in a quorum trap where you can set quorum too high, you can never reach quorum, and the DAO actually can't legitimately execute any proposals, right? And so you have to think about all these different systems and voting outcomes and edge cases in advance to run a blockchain organization that is truly a DAO. Because the vast majority of DAOs out there are aspirational DAOs, right? There, there are people who are trying to govern themselves in a more democratic way, or at least represented in a, in a rule-based way versus like backroom deals. And so there's a cultural disdain for the way things have been done. And we're trying to build a new culture in Web3 where decisions and the upside is more out in the open. So Origami, my company, actually created the DAO for Collabland. And so if you are an NFT DGen, you have absolutely 100% used Collabland. You probably did the airdrop. It was one of the biggest airdrops of the year, and it was a fantastic experience. Now, we were brought in to think about the DAO, to build the DAO system, and to actually work with their lawyers to build a cooperative. So the cooperative is the legal structure, and the DAO is a governance structure on top of that legal structure. So it's like saying, hey, instead of having a corporation, a corporation is a legal structure, and the corporation is run like any other corporation that exists today, we're going to run that corporation with governance as done by token holders. And that's totally possible today. That's totally legal to do. All the ramifications of token holding aside, like you can actually build a corporation and say, we're going to actually govern this using votes from the token holders. And in fact, shareholder governance exists as a practice and as a theory and all of that today for corporations anyway, what we're doing in a DAO is making that more transparent and explicit from the beginning. So the DNA of member participation 
is baked in from the start instead of being added as a potential feature down the road. So, so this is like a little bit different than maybe what people with experience in DAOs are used to with this the aspect of tokenized governance and everything sort of being like on-chain and, and more of, of an automated system. Do you find that it's difficult to explain to some of these like OGs that have expectations of what a DAO should be? Do you find it's difficult to like yeah. explain to them what this new like legal DAO structure really is? Yeah, yeah. At, at some point, you know, the legalities have to go to the lawyers. And, you know, we live in the in-between land between people who don't care about the legal structure and then the lawyers who care a lot. And so we're that translation layer. And so at some point, your eyes will glaze over, right? The minutiae of like Cayman Islands independent directorship and supervisory roles, no one cares, right? But we are brought in to make sure that people understand the consequences of making those choices because we've gone through that with many other DAOs or we've done that for on behalf of other DAOs and communities. Like these things do matter at some point, like the rubber has to meet the road and these decisions will have implications. And to educate a lot of people who are just basically booting themselves up into the world of DAOs. And so we understand like governance and board of directors. We don't know, most people don't know how that translates into day-to-day activity for an actual DAO that wants to operate and actually have full-time roles and how to do budgets and things like that. And so having experience from other communities who have actually done this work and found it to work in a certain way and pros and cons of it and communicating that back to other communities has been incredibly helpful to them. And the other thing that we see often is because DAOs are inclusive by nature, people don't know where to draw the line in making a decision and moving forward, right? Because you can always be more inclusive at the cost of speed and also pissing off people who want to get shit done, right? And so there's a balancing act to be had there. And if the DAO starts out without a culture of execution, like getting stuff done, it becomes like this round robin of, well, who wants to go ahead and actually make a call and see if their heads get chopped off, right? <laughs> and so if somebody steps up and says, I believe it should be done this way, all of a sudden, like everybody's eyes are on them and they have to defend that position. And that becomes really, cha- becomes really challenging. And that becomes a, th- a culture where you optimize for the wrong things. If you chop off the heads of people who stand up and say, we should do it in this way, then people don't stand up and the DAO starts to become more quiet or become more fragmented. And fragmentation is not the same thing as decentralization, right? We tell people decentralization is a direction. It is not a destination. Centralization is actually a very powerful tool and parts of your DAO should be centralized because that's how you get work done. But at the same time, too much power cannot be given to that centralized organization. That power needs to be distributed in a way that allows new ideas to come in for new people to actually come in at the same time. It's almost like then decentralized governance, but more of the centralized leadership there. Yeah. So what we recommend is a tiered structure in which electoral, like the power for to the community is given for specific actions, like voting in the the committee members or the core directorship or something like that. And that power is time-based, it's seasonal. And so people know when to pay attention because we've seen multiple problems with DAOs where all the power was given and decentralized. And because there's too many decisions that need to be made, people disengage well, I don't want to vote every other week and read all these proposals, so I'm just not going to participate. And if quorum starts to fall 
or people are not actually paying attention because they assume other people are, you end up with you know scenarios where people can actually rob the treasury or misuse those funds or like take over actually effective power of that treasury or that DAO. And so we want to avoid that. And so having a seasonal election process and having representative democracy or representation of token holder powers is actually a healthy thing. That feels centralizing to a lot of people, but the practical re reality of running a large DAO is that centralization is highly effective in communicating and getting stuff done. Holding those centralized authorities responsible and accountable is what's really challenging. Do you think delegation will part of solve that problem? Because delegating to someone is kind of like centralizing the voting power as well. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to delegate. So I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about delegating token power to another person in the DAO, right? So like right. Vera, I'm an ape holder. I can actually delegate my votes to you and you can vote on my behalf. Now, if you play that over, over the long term, de-delegation becomes a problem, right? Vera, you might have had my delegation for two years and I might have forgotten about it. And you, you might be actually silently accumulating power over a long period of time. And now all of a sudden, Vera's running the show. Did we want Vera running the show? I mean, like, did we intend to do that? At some point, we need to check and make sure that the delegation was actually appropriate. And that's the intention of the people delegating those tokens, right? Abdication and that is not the same thing as de delegation. Interesting. Have you found any tools that are already existing that are being used for that that de-delegation are there any automated no things? nothing huh no, no nothing there yet and part of it is we are trying to figure out at origami what is the best practice what is the theory in which we want to actually ask people to de-delegate on an automated basis right so i may delegate for a number of seasons right and so it may auto de-delegate after two and now I'm responsible for redelegating, right? So there has to be a mechanism for us to cycle the power through to get to allow the token holder to say, "Let me check to see if this is where I want where where I want my power to go." Yeah, but the voter they actually takes over the voting power over the delegator. Like, if I delegated on you know lost, and then if I want vote, it takes over on the delegations on lost. And if, if we have the election seasonal, then people are actually highly like participating on that kind of, and then they will start aware that, you know, like, oh, this is the delegation here. They start to participate in the DAO because it's just someone they know, you know? Yeah. So this is where we need to figure out a cadence and a tempo for the critical decisions that need to happen, right? So Orange DAO runs on a six month season. Every six months, there's an election, and each election is actually a time for people to check in and say, are my interests being represented by the right people, right? And also, that election process is great because it allows members to run and actually learn. And so it creates a pathway for new members to become experts within the DAO and to actually spread out the learnings that we have in the DAO so that more people can become good stewards of, of our DAO. Uh, it's something that we're exploring and learning. And if you look at what's happened in the corporate world, shareholder proxy, proxy voting is what they call that, has really not led to good governance. And so it's an opportunity for Web3 to say, hey, we, we know that shareholder proxy votes exist. It's actually usually 
gives more power to the people who already have it. And so how do we actually fix it this time around with better tooling? I feel like I'm, I'm over here taking notes as it's so relevant to, like Vera had mentioned at the beginning, the, the work that I'm doing as a steward in the ApeCoin DAO now. One of the things that's come up in the discussions around delegation is like the aspect of, of rewarding people for voting or rewarding people for participation or delegation. How do you feel like that plays into to this whole structure? And like, is there like an, like an overarching concern with doing that sort of thing, do you think? I am not a fan of paying people to vote because the in, what you're doing is you're creating an artificial incentive to pe for people to just click a button, right? So the, the net value of just making a bad decision becomes greater if you incentivize just the vote. And so DAOs can run well and have good governance even when a small number of people actually participate. What's critical is that the rules that govern the DAO are easy to understand and are simple so that they're robust. So our philosophy at Origami is that DAO rules should be actually easy to comprehend and be simple enough that people can keep it in their head, right? And so when we are popularizing our framework, one of the reasons why we make them kind of work well with each other is that you can actually move from one DAO to another that uses a, our, our framework and, and understand how the governance will work. Like there are elected members, there's seasons, they're run on a regular basis, there's weekly communication. So like every DAO kind of has like a similar feel to it and you can actually take one person from a DAO and they can apply their experience to another DAO relatively easily, right? So what we're doing is by using the same framework across many DAOs, you're creating a pool of talent who can be core contributors and, and good governance participants. And so having a industry standard of how DAO should work is going to actually make each DAO more robust. At the same time, like it's going to be a long time for many people to learn how to do this. And so we're really focused on getting a handful of core contributors to really understand how the framework works and that for them to actually believe in decentralization and continue to actually follow through on that. That's very interesting that you guys are building a framework that actually works for every single DAO. And yeah. speaking of governance, can you like discuss the importance of governance in a DAO and how it differs from traditional form of governance? Yeah, so I don't think very few people have had the responsibilities of being a member of a board, right? So you are not an executive. In other words, you're not the ones doing the one doing the day-to-day -day operations or the work, but you have qualitative control over the leadership. In other words, if I'm on the board of directors of a startup, there are several things I'm allowed to do, one of which is to hire and fire the CEO. Some cases, the board may have the right to reject an annual budget, right? They may not submit it, but they can actually say, hey, this budget that's been approved, we have the ability to veto it, right? You're spending too much money, things like that. And so those powers that are given to the board should be explicit. And that's an opportunity for people to learn how to actually govern an organization in which they are not actually the executive or the core team that's running it. And so it, they act as a counterbalance to runaway power. Do you find that there are any like broader regulatory concerns when you have like maybe this small group that's at the head of what's supposed to be a decentralized organization like that could have the perspective of seemingly making a lot of decisions? Yeah, so this is where, let's assume that the DAO actually has a legal structure, right? A lot of DAOs, DAOs in name only so far, like they don't, right? It's, it's a general partnership. But let's say you actually have a truly compliant DAO 
like Collabland or OrangeDAO and things like that. The organization that's actually doing the work is a, like an LLC or a private company that's been hired by the DAO to perform these tasks. So they're a subcontractor. So in that way, that's relatively easy to understand. And that's where having explicit governance or parameters on governance that says all this stuff that is day to day will be managed by the services company that we pay to perform work on our behalf. So we know where the lines are between what the DAO is responsible for and what the services company is responsible for. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense having a separation there between sort of the responsibilities and the expectations. Yeah, and also we found that, you know, when you're trying to hire people into these roles, it's really terrifying if you hire somebody and say, hey, there's a six-month term. You may not have a job in six months. And by the way, every person who's a member of the DAO is going to yell at you about your job and what you're doing, right? That's not a great recruiting angle. And so we want to actually give room and make space for people who have been hired into these roles, either they were elected or hired by the board or the committees, to actually do their job. And so there are things that we want to do to make the DAO feel more like a normal job in a company versus things that are, hey, this is really a frontier organization where we have to figure out something, these things for the first time ever, right? We want to make sure that we can recruit great people into good roles and they have the stability and the ability to actually say the things that they want to say and get jobs done. You don't want the community up in arms over every small decision. The community has to understand that that won't lead to better outcomes. Now, everything that you're saying, these are literally the things that we're facing and going through every day. And, yeah. and one of the things that's come up is I'm getting feedback from you know some of these outside professionals who you know we would want to see potentially taking positions or contributing to the DAO is like this aspect of, of elections and, and as you said, like these seasons, Sometimes it can be hard to reconcile with these professionals who have an expectation of like good work merits doing more work. Like, so how do you overcome that? So the thing that I look for is, are these people experienced and talented in a previous life or in a different industry that makes sense, right? So if you are hiring a core contributor who is going to lead a team of people who has to provide services to the rest of the DAO, are they experienced at building a team and executing against the budget or the directives of that have been given to them, right? So it's like a simple, you know, are they qualified? If the answer is yes, fantastic. Now, did the DAO create an environment in which they can recruit the best people for these jobs, right? So this is where not all compensation will be even and DAOs by nature, the compensation is actually mostly public. Is the DAO comfortable with private compensation? In other words, can, do you want to give a bucket of money to the services organization and say, you guys figure out the rest? Or is the culture of it such that you will want to set effectively prices for services? And so if I'm the chief operating officer of a startup, I need to make sure I'm going to make comparable income at a DAO given the risks that, are actually, that I'm taking to run this organization, right? And so I want to make sure that the DAOs have the best talent available from a services perspective and that the governance is true and that it can be turned over and that that person could be fired if they don't perform, right? Because the last thing you want is for the governance to exist, yet you can't ever fire this person 
or the DAO can never agree on the right compensation to get the right people on board. Like both are failure cases. Now the success case of this is pretty amazing, right? You have large treasuries, you have enormous communities with vested interest and a network that you can activate to launch a program or product or service or what have you. And so the upside is clearly there. What we're trying to do now at this phase of DAO development is how do you minimize the downside so that people can experiment with making DAOs better. I'm taking notes. Wow. Well, I, I really like it when you say, you know, like the governance and the whole balance of governance should be the, the one that's stopping the DAO firing someone because that's something that we really worried and we're just trying to find a solution for our DAO as well. So, I mean, other than the governance perspective, the challenges that we're facing, low efficiencies, decentralizations, and we have quite a lot of challenge in the DAO. So what are the big like obstacles that you, when you form the DAO framework and facing? Every DAO has a very different set of obstacles. So something like ApeCoin DAO, large treasury, huge community, already the tokens already public. The challenge is there's a temptation to boot up a large group, right? To hire lots of people right away. Because if you hire a small group of people relative to the size of the treasury or the DAO community, then it feels like it's centralizing, right? But in fact, having a small group that you can grow or having a handful of small teams that can work together initially will go a long ways to actually making that organization much more efficient and longer lasting and more robust. So the, the temptation is to create something really complicated to satisfy everybody out there. That is going to lead to an immediate violation of the rules that everybody's agreed to, right? Because the rules are so complicated that people don't know how to abide by it. Now, the moment you have a complicated set of rules that people have violated from day one, the trust is gone, right? And so that creates this negative cycle of, well, no one's abiding by the rules anyway, so what the fuck am I going to do? So having a small group that is this boot up group is actually going to help in creating a culture that understands, like has tribal knowledge on how to run the DAO. And so Orange DAO went through that same process. We had elections. No one knew what the hell they were doing because it was the first time around. And we explicitly created season zero, which was the boot up season. And boot up season was incentivizing more participation than execution. And now we've continued, like we're in season two now, going into elections for season three, where we have seven full-time employees of the DAO, and we are actually going to continue to improve our ability to execute. And we now have a cadence and a pattern and tribal knowledge. Like we know how to run elections and people debate the finer points of, you know, what can you do in an election? What can't you do? But the rules around the election are well tested and we feel confident around it. And so we have legitimacy over who is elected. That legitimacy allows us to actually trust those elected committee members and say, whatever the problem is, please fix it. We're okay with you fixing these problems in the gray area. And not, the entire community doesn't have to actually get involved. Have you found that there's like an appropriate size for one of these small groups or these handful of small groups where like a certain amount is too many or a certain amount is too few? Yeah, yeah. So we, we like the whole two pizza team, team philosophy. So that, can, that comes from Amazon. And so the idea there is people are really efficient in teams up to a size that you can feed with two pizzas. <laughs> it's a real thing. Oh, you said the two pizza? <laughs> That's what you said? Yeah, two, two pizza team is, is, a, is a real thing. Oh, two pizza team. What is that? What is, is that like so it's like four people? between your appetite, like four to eight people. All right. You said it on the... Like, wow. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually pretty well backed by like organizational psychology. And so if you're going to create a, a team of people to do some core task for DAO, like core services, treasury management, or like finance management of the DAO, like it should be a small group of people less than eight, right? And they can actually handle lots of different functions for the DAO. So you notice that when I said Orange DAO has seven full-time people, we have a two pizza teams worth of people that are full-time. And so they can gel together as a team. And there are other members who are part-time that form other two pizza team-sized groups. So this is interesting. I, I like the concept of participation versus execution. In, in some of the DAOs that you've worked around, have you noticed a difference in maybe some of the some of the DAOs that do have a larger treasury as opposed to some of the DAOs who are really like trying to pool money together to get up to a point where they have that treasury to begin making decisions? Do you see like a big difference there? Yeah, so, so the big challenge and friction point is around compensation. So the moment you actually have a treasury that can pay out people for doing the work, it becomes a question of how do we actually set compensation and how do we get the right people in the right roles given that compensation? And so people get hyper weird around like knowing each other's comp, setting that comp and feeling like they're not being rewarded appropriately for that work or afraid of, you know, over rewarding other people for doing some part work. And so that's the difference between a DAO with a treasury that's you know large enough versus treasury that's not. And so there are different ways of handling this. Depending on what the DAO has already communicated or what the culture is already, changing that becomes relatively challenging. And so it becomes a question of how large do we want this original team to be and what powers are we vesting with them so that they can actually do the work. Sounds like it goes back to that idea of what are the elected officials in the DAO doing as opposed to what are the people that they're hiring doing. Yeah, so it, you can imagine setting comp using a open voting process on a proposal gets really hairy, right? People don't know how to set comp. The vast majority of people who are participating have never hired anyone or f had to fire someone or to set you know, standards, right? Like these are things that are done by people who with business experience. And at the same time, like, do we trust them to set comp correctly and appropriately, especially if they're the ones setting comp for themselves? And so there has to be some like role-based segregation between myself as a token holder, myself as a board member of the DAO versus myself as a employee of the DAO, right? And that has to do with legitimacy of the voting process and having the right people elected because if the elect process feels shady, then the comp is absolutely shady. Would you mind maybe explaining a little bit more about the, the concept of the, the role-based segregation? I think it seems pretty simple, but would you would you mind sharing maybe some things that are maybe not as simple as they seem about that? Yeah, so let's say you're a member of a DAO and you're a core contributor and you may be contributing based on like future speculation of like, maybe I'll get some tokens, maybe I won't. And all of a sudden you find yourself like with lots of influence. Now, if you're going to set comp, and it's going to be done by a small group of people, you're probably going to end up in that small group of people who has to set your own comp, right? Now you have to defend that comp and say, I'm going to pay myself X number of dollars or USDC, and this is how we have to justify that. That becomes highly contentious because you are setting comp for yourself, right? What people forget is, yes, that's true, but people have a duty to the DAO to create a system not just solve a specific problem. And so that comp becomes a standard for other roles. 
And so setting these standards and benchmarks that we can use as like a relative comparison to other roles becomes really important. So we recommend at Origami that role-based compensation follow what's called a t-shirt size. And so it's not about you know, you can set comp anywhere from, you know, one stable coin to an infinite number of stable coins, right? So there's the infinite variability is really challenging to create good standards. We recommend that DAOs set up like a small compensation model, medium, large, extra large, right? And depending on what roles are being created, you set the compensation first, and then you open that up for people to run and apply for those roles. And so we might have a community manager role. And that role is, you know, 20 hours a week. And that might be considered a large role. And so now you can see, oh, a role of this experience that requires this much, you know, commitment is going to be set at this level of comp. And so I, I can say, oh, an extra large role is more comp, more experience and more time than that. And a small one is less time and less experience. And now we can start to see differences without having to go create 18 different levels right? And have an HR group that says, oh, you're level 16 and a half. Let's see if we can give you five more, you know, hundred bucks, right? So it, creating that efficiency requires kind of these step functions that people can all agree to. And the board or the committees or the core teams can actually say, we're abiding by these standards and we're creating rules based on these t-shirt sizes. And so that not every single position becomes a two-month negotiation. Man, where were you two months ago for that coin down? I think I was getting drunk in East Denver. Damn it. <laughs> Vera? <laughs> I'm just still processing with what Ben said. It's, yeah, I mean, it... run lots of companies and startups and, you know, I've run you know, companies with more than 100 people. And you, you usually have like an HR person whose job is to determine, determine comp. But the shady part of like a centralized, you know, organization and startup is that that comp standard really only works for the company. And you tend to hide compensation behind a wall of, hey, that's corporate information and privacy. With a DAO, the hardest part is tackling that up front. And what's actually really great about this t-shirt size model is that you use like these normalized building blocks. So when you set a budget for the next season, you're not going, how many exact dollars do we need? It's how many rolls of appropriate, approximately these commitment sizes or t-shirt sizes can we, do we need to get the job done? And so you don't have to debate every single position and every single comp that happens with it. But the question is, who's coming up with these positions? Yeah, so that's the job of the board or the committees, right? And you do that not at ad hoc, like one at a time process, but you do it at a seasonal, like budgeting process. And so for a season three, Orange Dow is going to propose seven full-time roles of the XYZ, you know, levels according to a budget that's been set by the committees. Right. And so you can actually have anyone, you can actually endow a group, like a team within the DAO to come up with this budget. And you can have an up or down vote after a comment process as to we're going to spend this much money, not a dollar more. And so like Orange DAO is committing 80% of its stablecoin budget in a given season to existing programs and leaving 20% open for new proposals. Like we didn't have to do that, but that's now like a 
a, a tradition or like a practice that we're, we're going to continue to run with. Like nowhere in our governance states that you have to do that. But we felt that that was an appropriate amount given what we've seen in the past. And so the budget team, which was actually the Treasury Committee, came up with this process. And it was a group of three people. And that was done in consultation with others. But we trusted that group of three people to come up with that budget and to propose it. And that, that power to propose a budget rests with the Treasury, Treasury Committee in our charter. And so as part of the origami framework, that was already in there. We knew that it was going to be contentious. We knew that setting a budget, going through a small group of experienced members who, who are accountable to the DAO was important. So ex we explicitly gave that power to that small group of people. And now the DAO members at large can't say, I have the right to propose any budget I want. We know that that power rests with that small group. And if you want to participate in the budget process for next season, you should run for office. That way you can cut out 90% of the debates around who has the right to do this and how the hell are we going to do it. Yeah, I mean, always circling back with another question is decentralization. They'd be like, oh, your DAO is not decentralized. So <laughs> back and sure. forth. Sure, yeah. no, but, but by that definition, no DAO is decentralized. And if you've seen a truly decentralized DAO, it usually ends in people not engaging. People just dropping off and engagement keeps dropping and dropping and dropping and you end up with this kind of dead DAO situation. So if you want to get stuff done, you have to trust teams. You have to trust people and individuals to get stuff done. And so what's the safety mechanism built into that, right? And how do you actually hold them accountable to do the right work? Mm, it's just, yep, just like Vera, I know these things are sinking in as they're relevant to the conversations we're having every day. I, I like the way that you introduced like these, like the two pizza team phrase and the t-shirt sizes. Is there another one of these that you have that you could This drop? is a lot. I mean, what's your problem? Let's go try to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a tool for every problem oh, you will come here, up with. I got with, a problem. Right? I got all a right, problem. All right, all right. We, we mentioned a little bit about onboarding and participants. Okay. So we have a team, we recommend that there's a team of people whose job is to onboard new members. There's obviously documentation that people can use, but generally people don't read it, right? So this goes back to designing the DAO in such a way that feels intuitive, right? And so what are things that people are used to in their day-to-day -day life that they understand about large organizations or communities? And how do you actually structure a DAO in such a way that feels intuitive to a lot of people? So having defined seasons, every six months being a super easy way to understand it or annually is really great having a weekly cadence of town halls or a newsletter that goes out and that gets updated. That, that's really important. So staffing that core services group whose job is to send the communication out to the edges of the DAO becomes a primary challenge of onboarding, right? So you can say, hey, we're going to do a call or we're going to have a, a call two times a week that onboards new members to how the DAO works and we're going to use the same kind of feel for it. And if you don't have the time for that, there's a bunch of other stuff that you can look at. So again, going back to like, how do you create an organization where there's a little bit of gatekeeping involved, right? So like you can't run for office unless you've shown that you are a well-intentioned member with some qualifications. And so the way to do that is to like say, hey, you've joined the DAO, welcome, you've been onboarded. Now you got to pick a pick a team or pod or guild, whichever you want to call it, and participate. And these are the guilds or the teams that are looking for new members, right? And this is the type of talent. So that's like almost like a, like a community job board or like a participation board. And you can build your rep 
whether it's on-chain or not, by participating in those other team-based calls. So, you know, Collabland DAO or VC3DAO or any other DAO will have some business operations that they want to do, and there are people who are staffed doing the core work of those DAOs, right? And that's how you learn, truly learn, whether you want to be an active contributor to that organization. It's not at the, I just joined the DAO, what do I do stage, right? It, they do have to spend some time to learn. And again, having seasons and elections gives people the tempo and the cadence to say, okay, great. I've been doing this for three months now. I actually want to step up and do more, right? What, what's the compensation framework if I do that? Like that stuff should all be public. And you're talking about contributing across different groups. Does, is there ever any issue with like the perception that people should be, you know, kind of choosing what it is that they're doing as opposed to kind of hopping around? Or do you find that it's, you know, in the ethos of this decentralized ecosystem that people do kind of contribute to the different areas? Yeah, so the thing that we have to recognize is because DAOs are new and because we're onboarding basically the entire internet to Web3 using DAOs, it's going to be a lot of repetition and a lot of teaching, right? And so a lot of teams and DAOs are struggling to onboard new members and it gets it feels really repetitive, right? It's like, great, every week somebody shows up and asks the same question because people are new. Having the right team, if when teams can set their membership or their own like sub-membership, that becomes manageable to them, right? It's really terrible when you like, want to have a small team to execute and all of a sudden you're just inundated with new members and you can't get stuff done, right? So where do you put the new members? Who, which team wants these new members, right? So giving those teams centralized control over their own team size is going to give them the autonomy to be decentralized, right? The irony is not lost on, on us, but some gatekeeping is needed so that teams can actually do their work. And... So how do you change who's, let's say there's a design team for a DAO, and it's staffed by a handful of people and they've been doing that work. And there's another team that wants to do more design work, right? How do you manage the workload between two groups who have effectively competing talents, right? And so that becomes a challenge at the DAO level, not at the team level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the gatekeeping aspect is something that's difficult to overcome with the communities. Have, have you noticed at all I, I've I've seen Orange Dow, and I'm sure it hasn't been a problem there at all. But maybe with Collabland, you've seen you know some some different sort of community members there. And have you noticed that the that like social media presents any sort of a an issue when you're considering like Dow governance and and maybe like a vocal minority? The 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 more like Dow native challenge is the use of the brand. So as a member of a DAO, what right do you have to use the name of the DAO in a thing that you're doing, right? Like we've obviously seen this with NFTs and you know IP. The DAO's brand and its goodwill is another form of that IP and the challenges associated with that. And so having specific rules around, you know, I can claim to be X in a DAO and it being explicit about how, you know, when are you authorized to be a partner to a coin DAO or to say that I'm doing work on the DAO's behalf, for example, like that becomes challenging when you have lots of members and everybody feels entitled to some degree of representation. Yeah, I remember one time you mentioned about that in the DAO, there are a lot of speakers and there are also a lot of doers and that balance of the speakers and doers are very interesting. Do you mind to share more about that, too? 
Yeah, so th- we've seen this kind of happen to many DAOs where there are people who want to get shit done and then there are people who want to be in- included or want to be inclusive of the community in getting that stuff done. And again, when you're onboarding new members on a regular basis, at some point you have to cut the you know process off and say, great, you know, time bound. We decided that we had a two-week process and two-week comment process is up and we're going to move forward, right? Whatever that decision may be. And so that having that weekly, bi-weekly, or whatever the cadence is of decision-making moving forward and having published that timetable is really important to say, we're done talking, we need to actually get stuff done, right? So you can point and argue about the document and the process, not with each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you find that there's like a particular cadence that works for these decisions? I know you said you guys had worked... Uh, on six month seasons and and so do you find that like making decisions across that span of time works and with the meantime you know the smaller proposals or whatever proposals there are with the core team sort of facilitating regular operations is enough to get everything done or or do you feel like there like there's a different cadence that should yeah so so there's a so the origami framework has a lot of flexibility here and so the idea there is though there are three core committees who are permanent in other words they exist forever and that's the minimum number of committees decentralized committees to actually run the DAO. there's treasury that manages the tokens and the finances there's governance which manages the rules and communications and then there's programs which is everything else that the DAO is doing and so in the origami framework, ApeCoin's revenue-generating teams will report to programs. And so programs actually acts as the board of directors for all of those revenue-generating projects, right? And so the people who are running for roles in programs are experts in how to make businesses, how to generate revenue, how to do sales, business development, all the stuff that's revenue-generating or product-building or what have you. Whereas Treasury is a services organization, same with governance. And so the DAO has to figure out how much of its resources it wants to develop and, and, and trust with programs, but it makes it easy for the DAO to scale new things. Like if there's a podcast or a media organization, you can decide between governance and programs. If it's revenue generating, it's probably programs. If it's just about DAO communications and internal messaging, you can put that under the governance committee. And so these like general like buckets of responsibility really makes the friction reduces the friction and and you know turf fighting between members of the DAO. Oh, I like it how you divide them based on if they will generate revenue or not under the subcommittee. Yeah, so so one of the reasons we do that is if you give let's say Treasury the ability to generate revenue and spend money, they can kind of run away on their own. They can justify almost anything, right? Whereas programs doesn't have the ability to really control spending. Their, their job is to control spending, ask for money from the rest of the DAO and say, we can generate more. And so they, can, they have to go be public about how they're going to do that. And those people who are elected into those roles have to be accountable for the fact that they have, they're supporting teams or are letting programs continue that may or may not be generating revenue. Right? So I can say, if, you know, if Lost and Vera, if the three of us were in programs for Acoin DAO and we wanted to kill a program, What's, how do we do that? What's our ability to do that? And is there a specific instructions or limitations on our ability to actually kill programs that are not generating money for the DAO? Complicated. 
com- it's complicated, but it's also high. It's it's a huge responsibility, right? right. Like right. if Acoin Dad decided to spend a million dollars on a partnership, and that partnership did not generate the expected return, program should look at that team and go, "You said you will generate, you know, one point five million if we gave you a million bucks. You did not." Like we may actually still continue to fund you because that's the best option we have, but somebody needs to be accountable that says, "Hey, you promised X or you said you will do these things. You have not delivered in the time frame that you did." So you have to actually hold them accountable to the things that they proposed because once the proposal passes, usually people aren't checking on it. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely something we've experienced here and, you know, speaking of like different workflows is we have also how to, you know, explain that partnership and how to facilitate those partnerships with people who are creating community programs. Once you've issued a grant, how do you sort of reconcile with them that they are keeping up with what they've been sort of tasked with doing? And so there, so, you know, in our framework, there's an entire arm, one third of the DAO's response, like board level responsibility is holding people accountable to the proposals that they've actually created. Yeah, I mean, keep people accountable. So do you guys also have like follow-ups like annually or seasonal like just to track the process i know orange dow has been invested in a lot of projects do you guys always have that process too yeah so orange dow has a venture fund which is a technically a separate company and an organization and that has its own mandate because we manage outside money right we have limited partners who actually gave us money to invest and we run like a traditional venture fund there are programs that are internal to the DAO that are specific to the DAO. So for example, there's a venture team within the DAO that helps us generate deal flow, like companies to invest in, as well as supporting our portfolio companies. And so they're funded by the DAO's tokens and its stablecoin budget. And we look at like what percentage of our budget is going towards supporting the, that program, right? So venture fund aside, there's a team of people whose job is to screen applications for funding and to support portfolio companies. There's 130 or so, so far. Making sure that that team does its job is a responsibility f- like from the fund as well as like at the budget level. So if, we, if the DAO is cutting budget to that team, that's going to raise a lot of alarm bells, right? So again, there are these like public, public to the DAO information exchanges that occur as like a function of just the seasonal process. So there's a seasonal budget and we can see in the budget, everybody can see in the budget that if our objective is to support our portfolio companies like our lives depend on on it, which is actually an explicit goal of the DAO, and we're cutting budget, we can everybody can ask the question like, why are we doing that? Right? If that's our stated objective, we need to figure out how to fund more of it, or at least to figure out if we're doing our job properly. And we're going to elect people who understand that responsibility. And so you can imagine there's like six different programs like that. There's a fellowship program, and that's different than the fund. And so this is where the decentralization gets kind of like complicated. But at the end of the day, if that's what we committed to doing, then we need to make sure it's funded properly. And you know it's funded properly when you can, because everybody can see that budget, and that budget's public to all DAO members. So... So when you do have to sort of, I remember how you, how you exactly said, you said kill it. You said, how do you kill a program? Yeah. How do you kill a program? So yeah. when you actually um, go, about, sorry, but I, what I wanted, wanted to ask was like, when you actually go about killing the program, if you, you had mentioned there are three sort of core committees that are permanent. So I'm guessing those you don't kill off, right? Yeah. You can't kill those you can't off. Kill yeah. those off. So, so there's really never an instance where like 
you're killing off something that's so important at an administrative level that it, it needs to be, you know, transitioned at some emergency like level, right? Yeah. So, so there's a reason why they call permanent committees in our in our in the origami framework, right? Because we want to make sure people understand, like this is this is the base operating level operating system of the DAO. There's minimum number of seasons that we can endow a program before the programs committee has the right to kill it. Right. So we've got to run a f one full season. Right. Once a proposal has passed, you have to respect the fact that you've you've got to give that program a chance. And so there's a minimum amount of time that we're going to allow that program to run. And after that six-month period or what have you, if that's not performing, the programs committee has the right to kill it. That makes a lot of sense. And I don't, I don't think we have a direct comparison at the ApeCoin DAO just yet. But I think about, you know, proposals that have gone out and, and maybe, well, definitely, you know, no sort of re reconciling with what's going on. And, and how could we potentially, it's such a hard, hard word, but how could we kill that, you know, partnership or that affiliation that we created in giving them the grant if they're just, you know, sitting there with a dead website? I think for us, like ApeCoin DAO, maybe they are doing it. We're just directly send them all the money at once. And it does not really go with, you know, monthly budget or seasonal bu budget. So they just get everything all at once. It's yeah, really we, hard that, for us that, to that's, that, Yeah, so I don't recommend that at all. So this is where having committees who actually know how to practice good financial stewardship matters a lot. And so not all programs or projects or proposals should be funded the same way. Right. And there may be performance based bounties in which the Treasury Committee has to decide whether they've met those objectives or not. These are not things that you can do at the DAO wide level through a proposal. Right. You don't want to pass a proposal to see if somebody met their objectives in a proposal. Right. It becomes way too complicated and circular. And so what you're doing is by passing a proposal, you're saying the right to interpret this proposal and how it works must be given to a small centralized group. So. Let's say you pass a proposal and the proposal includes some parameters on like performance. Like if they achieve these goals, we'll give them 10% more tokens. Who gets to decide whether they've met those objectives or not? That should be outlined somewhere and it should be given to a small group of people that that DAO has already entrusted that power with. Otherwise it becomes an administrative nightmare, right? Because it becomes fighting over whether they met the definition of performance or not. And so that power should rest with a group of people whose interest is looking out for the DAO. Otherwise, you end up with capture of the DAO by people who are writing proposals. Also, on the other side, from the community perspective, the community will be really scared of giving out the grants. It's just in general. I can't trust that to give a million dollars to someone that just read a proposal, wanted to do something, right. and not really having, like, you know, being monitored and... Um, Excellent observation. Right. Yes. Like if yes. you're, you're creating a chilling effect on the ability to actually flow capital and tokens to the right projects because you've made it, you know, only a, a, a there's only one way to do things. Right. And so most projects should be done in a way where once they've delivered or have started or met some milestone that you'll release the funds or the tokens to do that. Right. There's a couple ways to do it. One is to say this is an executable proposal. So in the origami framework and in our software, you can say this proposal will now allocate this number of tokens for this project. Now, all that may do, all that that may occur is that you reserve the tokens from your multisig for future spending that you can execute against. Or you may decide that all the tokens are going to move at the, at like the moment the proposal is passed. 
Like they're relatively easy things to do, but that should be either explicit or should be in the in the case that is not ex explicit given to a elected group who whose job is to look out for the interests of the DAO. Yeah, I think, you know, like just educating the community that decentralization is not the not the most important thing for the DAO. It is important, but not the most important part. And then otherwise, all those questions going to come back with the same answers. Like, what about the decentralization? And they can always kill anything with that yeah. question, yeah. right? And we've seen that happen over and over again. Many DAOs have literally just come to a standstill because people can't understand, people can't agree on the definition of decentralization, right? And so a dead DAO is no good to anyone. Correct. So one of the things that's come up as it relates to the ApeCoin DAO and the working group structure that we've been working on as the stewards and with the community and working group zero is this idea of an ape assembly, which would be a high context body of voters from within the DAO established by some of the criteria based on our past governance. Have you seen any successful examples of like this, this sort of a high context body of voter existing within the DAO? And and let me qualify that with, with what we're thinking is that there would be some sort of proof of personhood so that we're identifying who these people actually are in some way. Yeah, um, in any tiered structure, the question has the question has to be how does power turn over? How do people end up in that tiered structure, and is that fair? And what clear responsibilities? What intuitive set of responsibilities can you give them versus others? And so, depending on the order of magnitude of number of members and active participants, you want a tiered membership or representation structure, right? So there's committees or this other layer that you want in between. Each layer creates challenges in understanding how the DAO actually works. And so the question is, yes, it may be nice to have representation for people who are active or who are contributing, but does it actually make it easier for everyone to understand what is truly going on in the DAO? Because the, the biggest challenge anytime a DAO actually becomes operational and functional is who the hell is doing what, right? Decentralization is amazing in that it gives power to people who normally wouldn't have it and they can actually get stuff done, but at the cost of complexity. And so one of the first things that's actually asked is who's in charge, right? I love decentralization. I've joined your DAO. Who's in charge here, right? So being able to answer that question about specific projects, topics, initiatives becomes a function that is really the primary function of governance and for the DAO to onboard members. And so if that in middle layer is a weird, like, you know, hard to define and whose responsibilities or whose powers are unclear, they're going to they're going to become a political block that is going to compete against other parts of the DAO. All right. Oh, hard problems. These um, are hard problems. Very... It's a hard problem because your DAO is large. Right? When you're when you're dealing yeah. with like a DAO of two hundred people, that is a very di different set of problems than a DAO of two thousand people. Right. One of the reasons why it took Orange Dial much longer than I had expected to boot up and to become operational was that we expected 150 members and ended up with 1,500. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just overall, like, so, I mean, maybe that was not for everyone, but that was for a lot of people well, that they are, have the passion. So what so, are the people do you think 
is for yeah. DAO. Well, so so that's that's where the team and the two pizza team framework really comes into play. If you want to be entrepreneurial and you want to run a group and you want to execute against something, that is a sandbox that you can actually use to prove that you can actually get shit done, right? And so the DAO's responsibility is to say, great, here's a limited, here's a sandbox that kind of we can give you for you to prove that you can deliver on results, right? And we can give you a set of resources for you to do that, and you have the auto- autonomous ability to go execute against that with your small team. Right, so having lots of these small teams that can do stuff is really in the best interest of the DAO, and that's going to encourage people to actually want to join and do work on projects. Whereas, like a group of a thousand people whose decision making is unclear, and you have to shout over everybody to get stuff done, isn't good for anyone. And so, how do you actually get these small teams to work well, and how do you represent the results and the interests of these small teams so that they serve the DAO and not just themselves? Totally agree. Our conversation was amazing, and and I just want to wrap up with something that very interesting. It's a Twitter post of Aragami, and it said, "Old way to exit is IPO or sell. New way to exit is converge to a DAO and give ownership to your community." I think it's very well said, and it's a great way like for ending our conversation here. And we're definitely gonna have a next conversation of DAO. For sure, and thank you so much, Ben and Alost, for sharing your expertise and insights on DAO. And we hope that this episode has provided our listeners a better understanding of the DAO and how they work, their potential impact in, on the future as well. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please feel free to reach out to us on social media. Don't forget to subscribe our podcast to stay up to date to the latest. Episode, so thanks for listening and thank you, Ben and Lost, for coming and I really appreciate your time. Thank、and、you, guys. Cheers for the future. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.